0: Did you see the
1: kids the welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is not Pete. This is Adam. We probably should have talked about this on last week's show, but we didn't. But anyway, Pete is not going to be here for the next two weeks. He is over in the UK helping Australia win the Ashes by uh, probably getting drunk in a stadium. So have fun, Pete. Uh, hope you you know. Hope you miss us. We're definitely going to miss you. But Adam, welcome to the show.
2: G'day. Thanks a- for having me. Yeah,
1: I'm um, new Pete. Yeah, so last week went really well, so we thought, hey, let's get Adam in, and sit in on pizza. First off, the nation wants to know how did the gig on Friday night go? It
2: went it went quite well, you yep. know. Good crowd. Thanks for all those that came. I don't know if you guys are listening. I don't yep. know how much of an overlap Oh, They definitely is. are. Yeah, they, I saw you all there. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Yeah,
1: but they couldn't get them all in. All right. Um, so, yeah, we've got a huge show for you guys coming up. We're going to be talking about uh, all the things that are happening with big tech in Australia. We're going to be talking about metadata as well. We've got a whole bunch of stuff here, heroes and villains, as always. We've got an interview with Matthew Lesh. He's an adjunct fellow at the IPA. He's been on the show a few times. He's now the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute. Going to be talking about Boris. Going to be talking about... About Brexit. I've got all these questions, so we discussed them with Matthew, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And then another interview, which I'm really looking forward to, is with Sean. He is in Australia. He's a native Hong Konger, so we're going to be talking to him about what it's like living in Hong Kong through a very tumultuous time, prospects for liberty, etc. But we should probably get into the big story this week, which is big tech finally looking like they're about to get regulated. So the ACCC have come out with a report. ACCC Whenever I hear that in a sentence, I immediately get a bit drowsy because it doesn't sound like it's going to be the most interesting thing. It's a long name. It's a long name. So the C, they've uh, described technology giants, Facebook as and Google as publishers rather than like platforms. Now, the important thing with that is that they then would get regulated as though they were a publisher sorry the thing is that now the government has a bit more grounds to start regulating them start getting in control of certain actions that Facebook and Google have which is uh, pretty concerning and then the opposition Labor they've got onto the front foot with this one so communications spokeswoman Michelle Rowland has said she doesn't trust tech giants Google and Facebook to crack down on fake news without new regulatory interventions so this might end up with Google and Facebook being held responsible for any fake news that get published Mm -hmm. on Google facebook pretty scary stuff
2: yeah completely scary i guess at the end of the day the question is why is the government the people that we're going to to you know regulate fake news why is it up to them
1: yeah exactly because like i i don't know if i'm the government and i don't want certain news stories out there and i know if i call them fake news they don't get out there that seems like a pretty powerful thing that i can do so that's pretty scary um We'll be following that one a bit closer, but yeah, I like the idea that the government can just go, oh, that's fake news. This yeah. is, this thing that we're wasting all this money, fake news. So I don't have it anymore.
2: My problem with it as well, um, I think what everyone loves about social media is it kind of, it's given a voice to everyone. You don't need to be an author. You yeah. don't need, it's taken away that screening process that other media things, so media you know, platforms have, like the newspaper and stuff. So it kind of feels like they're taking away that ability for anyone and everyone to be able to say what they like.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, yeah, the, all, all the things that you want to say on Facebook now, you might not be able to because Facebook are going to worry about, oh, does this fall under the regulations that have now been put on it? So it's going to be interesting stuff. Now, the free market solution is, as always, if you're not happy, because like, there's also this movement within conservatism where it's like, hey, our voices are getting shut down by Facebook and Google. The mm. government needs to step in. I know like PragerU sued Google and they're talking to the government about it. Surely the idea is that you just go to a different social media website, set up your own and make that one the one rather than relying on the government to get involved. So we'll be following that one a lot closer. It's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, But yeah, that's the story. So, Adam, let's also talk the metadata stuff, which I thought was interesting.
2: Yeah, metadata. Well, so the ACT police have just admitted that they unlawfully accessed accessed people's metadata more than 3,000 times. Uh,
1: After previously saying it was 116. <laughs>
2: and it's gone a up big to 3, step up 000. and this is only in four years, keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, so a bit of a background on metadata for anyone you know wants to know. Metadata is kind of like information about other data that telcos are now required to keep on you. So it's things like what email addresses you're using, when and where you call and use your phone. So it's pretty invasive stuff. They know a lot about what you're doing and it's meant to be used for national security. Yeah. But
1: yeah, exactly. Well, that's another thing that we found out because a parliamentary in- uh, inquiry, this came out today, a parliamentary inquiry has been told that 87 agencies, at least, including veterinary bodies, councils and fisheries agencies, mm-hmm. have uh, sort of warrantless access to metadata held by telco. So it's not just ACT police uh, accessing it that you need to it's worry about. It's the fisheries. It's now the fisheries. Like Literally, the Veterinary Surgeons Board of WA, Victorian Fisheries, Liverpool City Council and ASADA of asking for people to have yep. data. Now, I don't know what Victorian fisheries do from 9 to 5.30, but I'm pretty sure that it's whatever they do, security. they don't need my metadata to be able to do it.
2: Yep, I agree. <laughs> and they're booking people for things like, you know, illegally removing trees, yep. illegally dumping rubbish using this metadata. And I'm struggling to see... The link between that and national security. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, and we were talking off air how, um, with like Facebook and Google, we, everyone worries about like, oh, Facebook and Google, they know so much about you. And you know, mm-hmm. you type in a Google Maps address and immediately suggest a place you went at two and a half years ago. You're like, well, how do you know that? Um, the thing with Facebook and Google is you can deactivate Facebook and Google. Yeah, you can
2: leave it at any time.
1: Yeah, I can't deactivate the government from my phone no. or, or well, Victorian fisheries.
2: The only thing you can do is. Build a bunker and hide in the forest And
1: is that a life? Is that a life we want to lead? You're a rock star You can't be doing the whole Uh, (laughs) Secluded person in the woods Yeah, it'd be peaceful But (laughs) Maybe a little empty. Yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. get the uh, the fan interaction. The, no, so no, certainly it's not. Right. <laughs> All right, sweet. So I got one more story. So this one break, breaking this morning. So um, like literally, we heard about it an hour before we went into the studio. So uh, the conservative political action conference going down in Sydney next week. It's like this big, big, big conference. Uh, get tickets now. I think we're sponsoring mm. part of it. Anyway, uh-huh. so Raheem Kassan is going to speak at this. Now, Raheem Kassan is the former chief advisor to Nigel Farage. He's a former Breitbart editor-in-chief. Big big guy. And Labour are now trying to get his visa stopped to stop him speaking at this conference. So, Christina Keneally uh, said the government should revoke Mr. Kassan's visa for comments he made about women and Islam. Now, I read the comments. Not exactly comments that I would be making on my own social media services. Interesting. They're interesting. But the point is, like, this guy is a pretty big fish. People definitely want to hear about him. And... If you're going to ban a guy's visa from coming into the country, the excuses better be good. And Christina Keneally's literal excuse, word for word, is we should not allow career bigots, a person who spreads hate speech, to enter our country with the express intent of undermining equality. I'm sorry, undermining equality is not a good enough excuse to ban someone from the country.
2: No, and I think, like, and I'm always trying to explain this to some of my friends, if someone's got such a ridiculous point of view and you're, you know, you completely disagree with it, then just let them say it and then just... Prove while they're wrong. Just debate it. It should be really easy.
1: Like, if if Christina Canealy really doesn't want this guy speaking or doesn't want people listening to this guy freely invite him to a debate and expose him tell
2: everyone why he's wrong and if it's if you're so right it should be really easy to do that
1: exactly because the inverse of doing that which is what she's doing where you try to get a ban creates all this publicity i did not know who this guy was until this morning and now i'm just like oh okay right well people would want to hear from that guy so really christina Keneally has done some bang up pr job for the CPAC conference like she's really getting the name out there the other one i want to say is like do you reckon Christina Keneally knows about Skype? No, she is <laughs> no other way of yeah. communicating like, with people. If you don't let him into the country, he will still speak at the conference.
2: Exactly. Like we already, we've already, like we already know about him. Social yeah. media is real.
1: Yeah, exactly. We can hear from him anywhere. It's yeah, pretty exactly. easy. And you probably have his metadata as well. All right. Uh, so those are the three main stories. We're getting into heroes and villains segments. So the hero of the week, our favorite, grunt the pig freedom award. Play the damn tape. <coughs> grunt the pig freedom award this week. So what it is is basically people that have stood up for freedom. Now grunt the pig. That is a, uh, the snort of freedom that we heard. So grunt the pig. Uh, who's going to win the award this week? So my nominee is Alan Godecki. So Alan Godecki is an artist in Victoria. He submitted a bust to the Victorian Sculptors Association's annual exhibition, which is like this big corporate thing, and he got it rejected on the grounds of nudity and being too political in nature. Now, before you ask what it was, mm-hmm. it was literally a just a sculpture of a like a man's torso from about the chest up, and it's a bare t- bare chest. Like Very- this is this is the modern this is the latest Nipplegate. Uh, You can't have the male nipple being shown in a corporate event And this is bad news for the Renaissance It It
2: is is. Uh, We've we've taken a lot of steps back And that's a lot of artwork we're going to have to go put away.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Statue of David, I'm sorry, that's going to have to come down yeah, that or at least certainly uh, can't go you know, put a put a singlet on or a T-shirt mm-hmm. or maybe just a nice apron. Yeah, we could dress it up. Like yeah, yeah, painting. exactly. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of paintings of Jesus that I'm now, you know, that definitely can't be shown in public. Mm, we can't exactly. have that sort of nudity going astray. Um, so bad news. But Alan is going to be fighting the good fight. He's making up a big stink about this. So for that reason, Adam is this week's Hero of the Week for me. All
2: right, all right. Well, my one, uh, it's a kid. He remains nameless. I don't know his name, but there's a video of him. There's a
1: difference between remaining nameless and not <laughs> knowing his name. But no, I'm sorry.
2: Uh, either way, he doesn't have a name. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a video of him uh, playing Monopoly and he's crying. And he's discri- he says in the video, it's not fun yeah. because he has to pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. And Let's play the video
1: now. now.
0: What's been, where's all your money gone, Donnie? Taxes. Six, nine, 9, 10, 11. <laughs> Let me fix my houses. But it's okay. It's part of the game. No, it's not. It's it not is. Fun to, it's not fun to what? <laughs> it's the worst part of the game. Oh, it's what? Taxes.
2: Uh, welcome to the club, kid. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I feel bad for him because you know most people don't really, you know, they don't realise the the terrible taxes until they get a bit older. But yeah. he's completely missed out on the blissful ignorance of being a child. Yeah,
1: exactly. Or it being in the mid twenties because you have that uh, stage in the early twenties where every time you hand in a tax return, it's just getting money back. Yeah, it's and then, just then eventually like they're saving
2: for you. Yeah, yeah. That. And then
1: and, and then like I like I've just got to the point recently where it's like you hand it in and they're like, oh no, we're keeping this. Oh money. wait, yeah. Like, wait, what? Well, that's That's not how it used to work at all. You used to give it back to me.
2: What's funny is, I guess, like, I think Monopoly was made, so, you know, to tell us how bad capitalism is. Yeah. Everyone loves it so much. All it's really showed is... We all really like it. Yeah. We just don't like paying the taxes part.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, the worst part of Monopoly for me is the people that enforce the rule about free parking. Like, all the fines get paid yeah. in the middle, and if you land a free parking, you get the fines, which is the only part of the game which is actually socialist. And, like, that's the part that gets people's goat. So I don't think it is the anti-capitalist machine that people think it is. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so I reckon that kid, I don't know how we're going to track him down to a water, but definitely for me, that kid that you've nominated gets the Hero of the Week award. I'm going so to him. We'll give him gonna... the Grunt the Pig freedom snout. <laughs> oh, Okay, and uh, that would also bring us to Villains of the Week. So this is the Howard Peck Award, named after one of the great uh, villains in film history from Ghostbusters. Uh, So this is basically people, like, you know, the inverse of the Freedom Award, people that have stood up for tyranny, people that have uh, crushed uh, spirits and innovation. Uh, So I've got one here. So Berkeley Council, it's in California in America. They are removing the words manhole and manpower from official lexicon. Now, there's always been the joke of, like, you know, and it's not a very good joke, but when someone sees the word "man" in a word like Manchester or you know, fireman and stuff like that, they go, "Oh, oh uh, you can't yeah. say that anymore." Literally, you can't say that anymore. Like the, you see, this like is Berkeley is actually done with this and gone. This is a good idea. Sorry, some of the words. By the way, uh, introduced by Rigel Robinson. First mm-hmm. off, amazing name, yep. Rigel. Uh, so, bondsman is now bond person. Fireman and firewoman will now be both referred to as firefighters. Manpower is now human effort or workforce. Sororities and fraternities are now collegiate Greek system residents. Wow! And a pregnant woman will now be referred to as pregnant employee. Yeah. What I want to know is, like, in Rigel's immaculate mind, how is this solving any problem? Like, does he like literally send that off and go like?
2: If anything, it's kind of fa- just like
1: <laughs> that's patriarchy hiding salt. the problem.
2: You know, yeah. like if there's any, if there's a problem he thinks he wants to fix, he's kind of just like adding a whole lot of stuff on top of it and trying to hide it with you know,
1: yeah, yeah, silly words. Yeah, like how how stupid does Rigel think women are that they'll just go like, hey, that's that's an ally, that's We're a guy fixed. standing up for yeah, us, yeah, he's that's a guy us. knowing our true uh, feelings and knowing our true wants,
2: recognizing them as part of the human effort.
1: Yeah, sorry for that, Rigel. Uh, you are villain of the week for me now. uh all right, Adam.
2: Well, I've got um, a lady
1: named Lord Mayor Clover
2: Moore. Um, so, a bit of background on her. Uh, there are a lot of women in Sydney. They are uh, quite concerned about the safety of a park, uh, especially at night, and the suggestion was to install some better lighting. Now, Clover decided, well, she said she was more concerned about the city's carbon footprint, uh, and she also questioned the complaint because the women don't actually pay to use the park. And therefore, she's not sure whether the lighting's appropriate. That's bad. It's quite bad. Yeah. Um, it's just an example of climate change ruining people's brains. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, we always have these things of like, oh, with climate change, what are you uh, saying is more of an issue? Like, we talk about that with coal exports where it's like, okay, do we want to help people who are desperately poor now or do we want to fix mm-hmm. climate later? And there's always been like, oh, what's more important? I think people, like, not getting murdered is yeah, probably I a bit more important. Yeah, I think it's important. up there and yeah. kind
2: of. Where does it stop? You know, we're going to just turn off all the traffic lights. Yep. You know, they're contributing and, you know, are we are we driving without headlights now?
1: That was a very Pete moment. You're really transitioning into the Pete role in this yeah, podcast I'm extremely well. Like saying where does it end is where a very Pete thing to do. So Pete, I'd be worried about you, who's definitely not watching this, but Pete, <laughs> if am gets back to me. I'm going to try and grow Pete's beard and be Pete. All right. You're only here for two weeks. So if we get to see that beard, uh, there's a bit of stubble. There's a bit yeah, of stubble right. for our people watching on YouTube. Um, Alright, we'll see how that goes uh, Alright, I think you're two for two Because that is an outrageous call Like he's
2: pretty mean <laughs> And
1: I also like the idea that Yeah, if you want me to care about Whether or not you're murdered You have to pay rates Exactly like, I, I, I don't hand this out free will
2: And because, you know We don't pay taxes already you Yeah, exactly. We don't already have money going To yeah. these things
1: Alright, sweet So you're two for two That's our hero and villain of the week segment So we'll now go to our interviews With Matthew Lesh and Sean Really interesting stuff So, uh, yeah, we'll go to those now Okay, we're now joined uh, once again by a friend of the IPA, adjunct fellow at the IPA, and now head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, Matthew Lesch. Welcome back to the show, Matthew.
3: Thanks for having me. Great to be back.
1: Now, so Matthew, you used to be full-time here at the IPA office. You've now moved to the UK. So what is like, uh, post-IPA life like?
3: Uh, it's, it's just not the same. It's just not the same anymore. Um, I mean, it's it's basically as as your listeners will know, because of Brexit, it's basically the apocalypse in London. It's the end of the world, as we know it. Even though Brexit hasn't happened, but no, no, life is life is having is a lot of fun. It's um, shockingly warm here at the moment, so they're all going crazy, and I'm I'm just feeling like hope, So it's quite nice.
1: Yeah. So what is the Adam Smith Institute for people that might not have come across it yet?
3: So the ASI is it's kind of pretty similar uh, to the IPA, uh, not as not as old. So it was really founded in kind of late 70s, early 80s era, And was a real key player when it came to pushing privatizations both in the UK and, and right across the world. And, and the ASI was, um, and its founders, uh, Eamon and, and Madsen, really went around the world trying to kind of make the argument for taking public services um, into private hands. And the, and the ASI has continued the kind of classical liberal libertarian bent ever since. So we, we do a lot of kind of similar things to the IPA in terms of pushing for, for free markets, um, more kind of social liberal freedom on a whole bunch of different issues.
1: Right, that sounds awesome. Uh, we might get in back into that in a second, but we better talk about the big issue, which is Boris Johnson. He's now prime minister. Things are changing. So what, where do you sit with Boris? Is he the hero of Brexit or is it going to be more of the same that we saw under Theresa May?
3: Um, look, it's certainly not going to be more of the same of what we saw under Theresa May. I think the entire attitude, the the people who've been appointed to cabinet, and the disposition of the government is radically changed. I think the biggest um, moment for me what was came when it was came out that not only um, in terms of the cabinet appointments, but the person who's kind of Boris Johnson's de facto chief of staff is someone by the name of Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings is the person literally ran the Vote Leave campaign. He was the kind of crazy genius behind it. And the fact that he's been put um, in number 10 right beside the Prime Minister with the job to deliver Brexit by October 31 um, is extraordinary. And what's actually been quite reassuring is there was this concern that after the leadership contest, after they went to the members that they'd start dragging back and saying, oh, no, maybe Brexit will be delayed, maybe it won't happen, they've actually doubled down uh, Everyone has said consistently since he became prime minister, both Boris Johnson himself and his key ministers, that it will happen by October 31. There's obviously no guarantees in politics, but it gives me a lot more confidence that they're preparing for a no deal, that they're unwilling to speak to the EU until they um, are willing to drop the backstop. So it seems like something certainly is happening and that the government is on, on, you know, for lack of a better term, war footing when it comes to ensuring that the UK does leave the EU. So I, I'm quite optimistic compared that, to where I was a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, because that's interesting you say that because Boris Johnson's never really been seen as the person that was uh, completely over the moon about Brexit. I know he's had statements where he's supported it consistently, but like he never seemed to be the poster child for the Brexit movement. So has he changed his mind or is he just going, this is what the voters want?
3: I'm, I mean, I'm not sure that. So, so Boris Johnson was one of the key spokespeople for the vote leave campaign in 2016 he was one of the main presenters and probably the the main face of of vote leave and what there was a question about uh the fact that he was kind of dilly and dallying um around the time of the referendum whether or not he'd come out for leave or come out for remain and he infamously wrote two articles for the daily telegraph one article for remain one article for leave and that's been claimed that it's a sign of his duplicity that he wasn't really for braxed personally i don't really buy that Um, if you read the article, because it's been leaked, the, the Remain side of it, the Remain article is pretty weak. You can tell that he's kind of, as a writer, as a journalist, he's kind of trying the intellectual case on both sides. And what you've got to remember is Boris um, was historically kind of made his name in politics as a Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, where he was heavily critical of the EU and the regulatory state. If anything, he, he caused some of the serious issues for major... Um, when it came to the EU, and even Thatcher, when it came to the EU, as a reporter. So I think he's actually got quite consistent um, Euroscepticism underlying him. Uh, at the time of the referendum, he did dilly-dally a bit. Obviously, there was a lot of pressure from like, David Cameron to to support the EU, to support Remain. Ultimately, he did come up for leave, and I think he's been relatively quite consistent since. Um, he did quit Cabinet when, when May announced her initial deal uh, last July. Um, he He has always said that he wanted to leave, maybe... Um, he's, he's said his ideal solution isn't no deal, but he's willing to do all the preparations and be ready to go for it if he can't get a better deal out of the EU.
1: Uh, at the start of our conversation, you said that this is going down pretty badly with the British public and everyone's freaking out, but like, is that actually what's going on? Are people really up in arms about it or is people, i sorry, are people quite optimistic about the Boris Johnson prime ministership?
3: I mean, I I mean, at the start of the conversation, I was definitely uh, being sarcastic, um, and I think the sense of some of the, the you know, international concern uh, about the UK is, is almost certainly exaggerated If you look at just one of the key economic stats, one of the unemployment statistics here in the UK, it is at kind of 40-year lows. So the fact that businesses are still hiring, the economy is still going relatively well, shows that there is this kind of underlying confidence. In terms of reactions to Boris Johnson, um, there's obviously going to be a set of remainers who had this, what's been called by Toby Young, the Boris um, derangement syndrome, where he literally is this evil figure. Um, he's, you know, kind of a fascistic kind of figure, which is just absolutely ridiculous based on the facts. Um, those people are obviously going to reject him, uh, and but they're always going to reject him. I think that the, amongst uh, people who support Leave and who support Brexit, there is a renewed optimism about Boris Johnson. And we've seen that there was a substantial uptick in the first polls that came out um, post Boris's leadership, that the Tories are now number one in all the polls. Now... They're not doing extremely well because they still haven't delivered Brexit, but the, the the real challenge to the Tories is to win back that kind of 15 20% that's with the Brexit party. And if they can win that back, they'll be well over 40%. They'll and be out of very much thrash labour at an election.
1: Yeah, I found those polls that showed that the Brexit party was actually leading in some constituents absolutely amazing when they were coming out. So has has the Boris Johnson thing, has that killed off Brexit parties like a major political force now? Is there a chance that they might be a part of like a, a, a coalition
3: I mean, it's it's hard to say, it's especially hard to say when you've got a, a first pass the post system here in the UK, that they might still have the ability to win some seats. So it really will depend on when the election is. If if Boris has delivered Brexit, it's it's hard to see the Brexit Party having much success um, as a as an entity, that, and the Conservative Party will be able to win back a lot of that vote. Uh, if they went to the polls two weeks ago, before Boris was Prime Minister and without delivering Brexit, the Brexit Party would have won potentially hundreds of seats. Um. So it's it's really going to be context dependent. What can't happen for the Conservatives, though, was the result in the EU elections where they got literally less than ten percent of the national vote. I mean, that's that kind of result is is basically the end for the Conservative Party. So that they've almost certainly got to be able to deliver Brexit and and get the get out and then refocus the kind of campaign against Jeremy Corbyn and Labour. And it's worth noting that after that, the Labour and the left is going to be more divided as well between the Lib Dems who had a resurgence. As the Remain Party and Labour, who's like a semi-Remain Party, but is not as as strong on it as as Lib Dems are. So I think if they can do a Brexit, they're actually in quite a good electoral position.
1: Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so with Boris Johnson coming in, Theresa May goes out, and there's been a few articles written about like what's her legacy, and it's pretty grim reading for any people that might still be fans of Theresa May. I was going to ask you like how how do we think about Theresa May like twenty years from now? What is uh, what do history books say about it?
3: I mean, I, I think she's genuinely one of the worst, if not the worst, post-war prime minister. She she came in with one job, and that job was to deliver Brexit, and she was unable to do that. Yeah, when you, and put then it you like add on that. top of that, um, and then you add on top of that the fact that she had this supposed domestic agenda um, that didn't really work that well. She took the Tories from a majority at the uh, to a minority in an election, and then she took the Tories to the lowest result basically in a few hundred years of the EU election. I don't think history will be particularly kind on Theresa May, but uh, it also depends how successful Boris Johnson is. I mean, if Boris Johnson achieves Brexit, wins a majority, uh, it'll make May look substantially worse. If he can't, um, May looks a little bit better by comparison. But uh, but even, even so, I think what's been going on outside of Brexit is very much a return to a kind of pre-Thatcher Conservative Party, very kind of paternalistic Conservative Party, one that's willing to adopt a lot of market interventions and price controls and all these kinds of policies that first of all kind of hurt the conservative party electorally because they couldn't really beat jeremy corbyn by being jeremy corbyn lied but also in itself are a bunch of terrible policies and so like the other reason why i'm actually quite optimistic about boris johnson because he's probably appointed the most free market cabinet since thatcher even perhaps more free market than some of thatcher's cabinets um which is quite extraordinary you've got really great people like liz Truss and james cleverly and Dominic Raab, even potentially Sajid Javid as Chancellor. You've got these people who have an idea about free markets, have an idea about needing to encourage entrepreneurs and encourage trade, um, and that leading to prosperity, which is didn't exist under May's regime.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, like, Boris Johnson, everyone says, like, Brexit, Brexit, Brexit is the main thing, and, like, what are the other options, what, sorry, what are the other challenges that Boris Johnson's going to face? And, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with the free market stuff. There's also, like, the paternalism in Britain. Is Boris Johnson traditionally that kind of guy? Like, I don't, from some of the stuff we see about his personal life, I don't think he'd be too into paternalism, but what do you reckon he's going to have on that front?
3: Look, I don't think Boris Johnson's, like, a, a perfect free marketeer, libertarian, classical liberal in every way I might like. What I would I would say is often these instincts are quite good. So during the uh, leadership cam- campaign, for example, he said the sugar tax needed to be reviewed, and all these nanny state interventions are going too far, um, which was quite a good sign. Uh, he's talked a lot more about encouraging entrepreneurs, encouraging business, encouraging the wealth creators. That was certainly never the rhetoric we saw from Theresa May, who was very much a kind of wishy washy. You know, we need some state intervention and some little bit of market. Um, so there's, there's great optimism there for Boris Johnson. Uh, another area, for example, he's talked about in recent days reforming is is planning laws. Um, it's just this huge issue when it comes to housing and the cost of housing, particularly in London, um, is just making it totally unaffordable, particularly for young people to buy homes. And they need substantial planning reform to allow people to build more homes. And he's he's talking about that. And when it comes to free trade, he's been he's appointed a great uh, trade minister, and he's been talking about kind of. Seeking agreements with countries like Australia and New Zealand and um, Canada, but also obviously the US as well. So I think on the 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 beyond Brexit front, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic on the free market side of things. Um, the, the challenge, though, is the fact that he doesn't really have a particularly strong majority whatsoever. And even with the DEP, has got like a, a one or two seat majority and there's going to be a by-election where they could, Tories could lose another seat this coming weekend. So as a result of that, he needs to get through Brexit in the next 100 days. And then really, if he wants to do anything on domestic Friday, he probably needs to go to an election uh, in order to win a majority, in order to actually be able to push through a broader agenda. Because I think it's, it's quite difficult to govern on the current um, dynamic in Parliament.
1: All right, sweet. Uh, I'm going to ask you to put on, uh, sorry, look into a crystal ball for a second. So true or false, Britain leaves the EU on October 31st.
3: Ooh. I'm going to say true, but I feel like every other political prediction I've made in recent years has been wrong. So, with a grain of salt.
1: All right. Can we get you to say false then, just so hopefully we'll reverse jinx this one?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, if you could, if you could publish true version of the fo- podcast, false, there will be no Brexit.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then we run them in the Telegraph, and five minute, years later, you're British Prime Minister. But anyway, uh, the other true or false one, <laughs> the other true or false one I've got is uh, true or false, uh, there is a no deal Brexit in the end of it.
3: I think false. I think more likely not than so.
1: Like a watered-down deal or a pretty hard-line deal? Like, are they staying in the customs market? Are they doing all these things?
3: So they definitely can't stay in the customs union single market. That's that's something that's been ruled out. I think they're basically playing, uh, to an extent, a kind of madman game with the EU. So one of the big flaws with Theresa May was the fact that there was never any sense that she would actually go for a no deal and it was never really put on the table. Um, and that meant that the if you can't walk away from a negotiation, the other side can get a lot more out of you. The fact that Boris is doing all this preparation for a no deal is showing this serious about no deal will make the Europeans a lot more willing to compromise. Um, and that's why I think that they will get some kind of watered down deal uh, without the backstop hopefully or, or some kind of different kind of range when it comes to the Northern Ireland issue and it comes to the border. So I, I think that they want a deal deep down, but in you know, order to get the deal that is reasonable, they need to have the preparation to walk away without one.
1: When I was watching Boris Johnson's first uh, question time as Prime Minister, like, I just always forget how much better question time is in Britain than in Australia. Like It's an absolute scene. Everyone's talking the whole time. Everyone's got the best insults. Like What are the differences between UK and Australian politics? Why is it always so much better at theatre over there?
3: I suspect because the, the chamber in the UK is much smaller. Uh, in fact, there's an inability for everyone to sit down. There's, I mean, there's 650 MPs over here, and they don't have a set seat. Um, and that means that it's quite crowded, everyone's quite close to each other. Um, and then the style of kind of debate in Parliament tends to be a lot more, I guess, a lot smarter and a, a lot more confrontational, rather than the Australian Parliament where everyone's kind of a bit more spread out um, and there's kind of the theatrics are very much, um, I mean, in both cases, I guess they're but in the Australian case, it just feels like it's a little bit more try-hard. There's another difference as well with question time in Australia, which is that um, in Australia, the question time means, is every day and you can ask any minister a question. Well, in the UK, usually the kind of question time is, with a prime, or prime minister's question time is once a week, and you just ask the questions of the prime minister. So it means that you're just always bouncing off one person rather than going between different ministers which happens in australia
1: right any other major differences you've noticed between australia and british politics
3: i mean there's there's a lot less there's a lot less party discipline i mean especially at the moment but even more broadly because there's there's just so many more mps um it's just much harder for any sense of control i think one of the key issues in australia is that you know, basically, half of the party room is 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 on the front bench, and then the other half wants to be on the front bench, and might be so five seconds really... away
1: from being on the front bench.
3: Well, exactly, exactly. So there's never that sense of a willingness as much to criticise the government and its actions. Um, whilst in the UK, you've got these kind of people who are effectively permanent backbenchers, um, and they know that, and that means that they they don't feel the the need to follow and do what the government says at every every stage.
1: All right, sweet ass. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people follow you on Twitter? Maybe you want to plug your book again?
3: Sure, sure. If everyone wants to know what's happening in Australia, you can read my book, Democracy and Divided Australia. I uh, Probably uh, looking back on the, the recent election is probably is now even more relevant in terms of the new divide in Australia between the inner city and, and suburbia.
1: All right, brilliant. All right, Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank
3: you for having me. Have a good day.
1: Yeah, that was our interview with Matthew Lesh. Really good. So um, that was a really awesome interview. I love talking to Matthew about it. I got a lot of questions that I had solved. But unfortunately for Matthew, uh, sorry, you might remember like halfway through that interview he said how they're absolutely going to leave the customs union single market. But unfortunately for Matthew, front page of the Telegraph this morning, Boris Johnson says UK could stay in EU customs union and single market for two years after Brexit deadline. So a few things need to be solved. Hopefully Matthew's other predictions are coming true because he was pretty damn optimistic about it all. So we'll see with that. It was um, nice. Yes. Uh, now we'll now go to interview with Sean. So I should probably set this up. So Sean, as I said at the start of the show, native Hong Konger, he's in Australia at the moment. Now, He's going to be in studio with me, unfortunately, like, because of the situation in Hong Kong and because of the situation with the extradition bill, uh, we're not going to be filming that and we're not going to put his full name out there, so he keeps a bit of anonymity. But he really wants to tell his story, he really wants to tell what the situation is in Hong Kong and what's going down there, and I'm sure there's so many people out there that want to know because what started as, like, you know, we saw those time-lapse pictures of... You know millions of people walking through the streets and all the stuff that's happening, and it's now getting pretty violent. And there's like mm. triad link gangs on the run in Hong Kong. It's getting pretty bad. So I definitely think we should talk to Sean about that. So yeah, we'll now go to that one now. Okay, we're now welcome onto the show, Sean. Now Sean is a native uh, Hong Konger, and you're in Australia at the moment, and. We were talking off air about some of the experiences that you've had and i just know that there's going to be a lot of listeners to this podcast a lot of uh watches on youtube now we're not filming this obviously but yeah, are, yeah. like people do watch this on youtube yeah. uh who do want to know a whole lot about what's going on in hong kong so i guess we'll start there so it was so inspirational when they started happening i mean the videos of people marching through the streets everyone
4: loved watching that so where are we at now like what's the situation right now it's uh it's quite uh tense politically uh, what we see is that the protest is kind of morphing, perpetual, self-perpetuating in a sense. So originally we got we, we started off being anti extradition bill. Now it's kind of anti police, anti government. So um, you want to conceptualize the protest kind of like twenty fourteen, the umbrella movement, named after you know the uh, tool that a lot of the students use to defend themselves against the tear gas but um it's also the umbrella movement because a lot of different causes and constituencies kind of use the protest as a moment to kind of vent their grievances against the establishment so this is we're looking at umbrella movement 2.0 only just much more intense in, intense because the same people who went through umbrella movement are doing are going through a much higher stake protest right now and um originally it was very peaceful as you said uh, we had two million people in on June 16th, I think, marching in the road, two million, really peaceful. Um, in As a normal Hong Kong citizen, the Hong Kong police cracked down um, kind of disproportionately heavy and that kind of just stoked the anger of a lot of the common citizens who kind of may be apolitical, who, who kind of just stood by the sidelines, and a lot of people just thought that oh, this is uh, this this might be huge. You know, this is this is the government using its state forces to kind of just clamp down on freedom of speech. My rights are being infringed, and that's why we are we are we are really kind of nervous, anxious about what's going on. And now that Beijing recently kind of just for the first time, broke with tradition and voiced its uh, stance on the issue. We are afraid about the People's Liberation Army kind of just stepping in and clamping down the yeah. protest.
1: Oh, I'll get to that in a bit, but you talk about how like
4: it's an umbrella movement
1: that cares, like there's a lot of different people that are caring about a lot of different things. But if you had to sum up what what's you dining everyone, what would it be?
4: Democracy. Democracy? Freedom to elect your government official. Right. So... Um, Hong Kong is kind of run like a company. I think that's what the central government really sees us as. We are kind of the uh, outlet, the funnel for a lot of capital, financial capital, uh, especially with the China-US trade war that's going on. Uh, Hong Kong has is treated like a Western country. We don't have the tariffs that China and the mainland have to endure when doing business with the US. So uh, as the trade war kind of rages on, and uh, just businesses in the mainland kind of just shifted, moved southward to Hong Kong, and that's that's what they see us as is like a, a an adapter to the outside world. And uh, now that we kind of go really went really political on on the other side, it's uh, um, they're not really too happy about it. You, you know, our president, like quote unquote president. Kerry Lam is, is we call it the chief executive. So it kind of puts into perspective how the central government really sees the special administration of Hong Kong. Yeah.
1: yeah. So Hong Kong's always been like an interesting political thing. Like uh, it was for a long time with the British and then it was sort of handed over to China. But yes. it's been re- in, in a sort of, it, it's still kept uh, independent. Now, when you say that um, you're worried about the People's Liberation Army, like yes. what is the relationship between China and Hong Kong right now?
4: Uh, it is, I'm, I'm, and I'm not really over-exaggerating this, but it is the worst since the uh, 1960s Mao cultural revolution movement. It, it, it is that bad. Like, As in,
1: like, animosity or wanting to control?
4: Like, h- how was it? A political tension-wise. Right. It's very heightened. It's very tense, nerve-wracking. Because, um, so, just going to give you a little bit of timeline mm-hmm. r- r- what really happened. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so... A few days ago, um, what, what the, the government had, the local government in Hong Kong, has been downplaying the size of the protest. We we put one million in the streets. They say it's only two hundred forty thousand. So you know the central government, they see the official figures. They think okay, it's not bad. Seven like eight million people in the city. That's that's a fraction. Nobody really cares. So let's let's push the bill. Let's push the bill as quickly as possible. Nobody's going to know about it. But then we stepped it up with two million people. And then now, you know, uh, you can't really hu- you can't really downplay two million people, yeah, especially just like with look a, outside your
1: window. Like, yeah, that's yeah, not,
4: yeah. That's not in the thousands. Mm. And then, especially with Hong Kong being such a small territory, if you clog the roads, everybody would notice. So the central government kind of got wind of that, and it's like, okay, uh, you might want to do something about this. You know, you guys are the, the business district is basically paralyzed, and you know, you guys have a job to do to ensure the prosperity and economic stability of society for us and the country and, you know, all that, all that, you know, jargon, mantra or whatever. But, you know, after two minutes, chief executive career I'm kind of a bit oh, okay, well, I'm sorry, you know, um, yeah, I kind of misjudged the situation, but I'm doing it as from from a standpoint of like a maternal figure you know, this, you might not want this now, but in the long term, it will be great for us, which is yep. complete utter nonsense, rubbish. It's kind of condescending that she would kind of go on air yeah. and kind of just say that. You can say just, that
1: about eating spinach, but not about your political independence. Like,
4: not only that, like, yeah. so the extradition bill, the reason why extradition bill was so frightening was that the original case had nothing to do with China at all. From, you what know, was
1: the original case? I don't think people know that.
4: Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna talk about yeah. it. So it all started when um, a, th- a, a, a there was a murder of a, of a Hong Kong resident. So he kind of flew, he kind of fleed to uh, uh, Taiwan, I think. Uh, like the murderer flee. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the entire thing was to how do we extradite somebody from Taiwan to Hong Kong so that they can get, so that that suspect could be charged in Hong Kong. Hong Kong being a part of China in this case. Um, And uh, the government kind of saw this as an opportunity to kind of like plug quote-unquote loopholes in the law. It's like, oh, right, you know, how how do we extradite criminals from from other regions of China? Bear in mind, the assumption here is Taiwan is part of the greater China, just like in a different system. Mm. So there's a lot of assumptions within this bill passed, that's why it wasn't so publicized in the beginning. They wanted to rush through it so that nobody could really get caught up with the details of the situation. So it was a murder in Taiwan of a, a Hong Kong resident and the suspect is abroad. They want to get him to Hong Kong, but they don't have the laws to do so, which is rubbish because some legal experts actually showed that you can do it with the existing laws that we have. So they just want it to, they want to, they see it as a political opportunity to really just plug what they want. Yeah. And the, so when yeah. you say stuff
1: like that, like the chief executive doing this sort of stuff, uh, I don't know the situation as well as obviously you and yeah. as much as some people, but it does sound like they're probably closer to China than they are to their own constituents. Is that they something are, they that are, people yeah. feel? Yes, definitely.
4: Yeah. Because, okay, th- we never elect our chief executive. We don't even know who our next chief executive is, to be honest. Um the chief executive has always been elected, and probably will always be elected, by a panel of tycoons, which business politically connected elites with in China, in China and in Hong Kong, and also the central government officials. We have no say on who gets to run our city. So there was there's a lack of accountability. The accountability is to the board panel. So. You, to to go back to the metaphor of the company so you are accountable to your board members we are we are more like products right we 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 funnel the uh, we, we keep china tethered to the outside world financially mm. so to speak yeah right now yeah
1: sorry like you reckon the chief executive is probably more closely working with Chinese officials. That oh, definitely. Standing up definitely, for Hong Kongs. Definitely. Um, yeah, that's terrifying. So last week, like, there were these videos that were coming out of um, link gangs attacking commuters and residents. Like, they were, I just saw pe- videos of people in all in white shirts walking yes, onto trains yes, and beating yes. people up. People weren't even protesting. Yes. Do we know why they were there and, like, who they're
4: with? Uh, we do, but officially we don't. Right. So... Um, officially, they were like, oh, probably, you know, these are just some random people who just got together and tried to vent their frustrations. But these people were never charged, you see. Mm. But, like, the protesters, they're all charged. Yeah,
1: but also, like, they're
4: all wearing the same shirt. Yeah, like, at that yeah. point, someone's, like... I mean, it was organised, definitely organised. It was organised, and yeah. also
1: that they wanted protesters to know that they were being organised. Yes. Like, otherwise, yes. you'd be making them wear different yes. things.
4: Yes, Yeah. So... uh. The context of that situ- the context of that incident was um, the the protesters who were coming home. They came home after uh, after going to the uh, central government office in Hong Kong. So we call it the Chinese liaison office in Hong Kong, where the Beijing central government uh, sent their officials to kind of just monitor what's going on, if everything's stable, and uh, are we heading in the right direction and stuff like that. Uh, so what happened was uh, somebody smeared paint on the, uh, China, on the on the emblem in front of the liaison office with, you know, they, they were wearing masks, they were not identified, obviously, but smearing, it, it might sound esoteric, but smearing paint on the Chinese emblem is something that would get you locked away for very, very long in mainland China, because it was seen as a, a direct challenge. To the authoritarian communist rule
1: yeah i've heard in hong kong it's even illegal to sing the chinese national anthem in a condescending
4: manner it is yeah it is uh so obviously China, you know the communist party cared cares a lot about it being respected yeah among the people and it and there's no um there's no end to how how far it would go, mm. just to safeguard that. I, it, in fact, like just a little bit of coincidental symbolic trivia. Um, the, the butcher of Beijing, Li Peng, he was a he was the person who ordered the crackdown on uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989. Uh, he passed away on July 22nd, on the same day that those protests were going on. Beijing ordered. Um, the local government to fly the na- national flag and the city's flag half mast. we don't do that because we commemorate june 4th 1989 we we know what he did but it was a symbolic provocation of we know you know history and we know that you fear history and you are tr- and then what you're doing is repeating history so it's like a symbolic provocation of that and to add on, the same day, everything was an intimidation factor. With the uh, possibility that police forces might have been colluding with these organizers or gang members, and tri- it's really, it really uh, shatters the fiction that um, the police is on our side anymore. Anything state-related is on our side anymore. And it kind of feels very alienating and isolating in a sense.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely terrifying. Yeah.
4: Um, Look, in like in Melbourne, right?
1: A month or two ago, a bunch of vegan protesters, like 30 people, closed down one street and it was yeah. like national conversation for 3 days. How do, like explain what it's like to live in Hong Kong with right. this level of protest, this level of tension, this level yeah. of like police action? Right. Like what is that like if you can't put it into words?
4: Okay, so um the the way to conceptualize it was to know how it was before. Before it was perfect. Like it was it's bar down the safest city I've ever been. Twenty is a twenty four hour city. I could I could wake up at three, four in the morning, kinda of go to the business district alone, or probably meet up with a friend just to grab something to eat. I, I did not fear for my safety at all. So uh, I don't think it,
1: anyone would mess with you anyway. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You're an intimidating uh, man. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah, you. Please put that baseball down. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But it, it it was that type of city. So now with the protest and, and, and the way that police kind of started harassing citizens, it kind of just shattered that illusion really, really quickly. So we tried to do it as civil and peaceful as possible. We played by the books. We we we, we conducted civil disobedience by strong-arming business district roads, just clogging them up so that people will listen. Bear in mind that our leaders... Are not accountable to us they're accountable to the central government and the central government cares about hong kong as a as more or less as a company mm. so if we kind of clog the business district they have to list at least listen so that was that was the mindset that we were doing that, that we were thinking so um clogging that up we we kind of we kind of tried to do it and then we got Cracked down by the police. They had batons with nuts and bolts. Just they had batons with nuts and bolts. Yeah, wow. Just just swinging away at students with. That's why if the re, if you look at the recent the photos of the process, a lot of people are wearing hard hats. Yeah. And masks. They're still out there. They're mm. still. It it is it is a personal right issue, and clogging up. I, I I've been around Melbourne. The roads are quite big. Clogging up the national roads. I feel like if. Uh, if if you did that, if the like the amount of people, the amount of protesters in Melbourne clogged up a road, China would not wouldn't would not hesitate on like just deploying, you know, the necessary force to kind of just sweep you away. We, yeah, we right. had we had one million people. 1989 is pretty good evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and and the fact that they could turn really quickly on, on the narratives. before nineteen eighty nine, they were just championing students are our future. Mm. And then before this, they were talking about how Hong Kong is necessary and integral to the uh, prosperity and economic growth of China. So it's you should always bear in mind that they can turn really quickly if they feel, I mean, like if the Communist Party's legitimacy is threatened. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so a final question, like, are you optimistic at all for the future of Hong Kong? Uh, and if so, why? And if not, why not?
4: Uh, as of now no not really yeah it's like a, um the 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 way that the protest is heading both sides are really dug in so uh in mainland china this this news has been largely censored so they as, as i mentioned earlier they kind of broke with tradition broke away from tradition and started covering the story a lot more they're calling it they're saying that unpatriotic protesters are destabilizing the society for their own selfish reasons and that's how they kind of force the narrative and now that it's out there they they need to see to it that this protest ends one way or the other otherwise they will look bad right
1: all right um yeah sean thank you so much for coming on the show I'm uh, great to be here Okay, cool. That was our interview with Sean. Um, awesome, awesome story. Uh, yeah, just it, it's such an incredible thing that's going on and happening in real time. So I don't, I don't know. Like I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. So anyway, well, let's try and lighten the mood with a few stories. And it made us laugh from this week. And I want to start off with this, if I may, Adam. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, new movie coming out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It looks awesome. The reviews are really good. But unfortunately, we're going to have to cancel it. We are. Yeah. Um, like this cancel culture and they're now coming after Tarantino. I thought it was only a matter of time. But anyway, uh, in The Guardian, this article from Roy Chaco, Why It's Time to Cancel Quentin Tarantino. He's talking about all the violence that gets performed in his films, especially on women. And we can't in the modern society have that with all the stuff. So therefore, no more Quentin Tarantino movies for anyone. I want to read out word for word the best paragraph in the history of English literature. In Tarantino's debut directorial film, Reservoir Dogs, the only female characters in the credits are Shot Woman and Shocked Women. Pulp Fiction, his second film, features female characters more prominently, but a trend of reveling in the, bu- uh, in the abuse of women began to emerge. One of Pulp Fiction's most famous scenes involved Uma Thurman's character getting stabbed in the heart with a shot of adrenaline to resuscitate her after a drug overdose. A few things to unpack here. First off... By his logic in Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. he just wants more women... Be- like, f- Okay, no, first off, has he seen any res- uh, Quentin Tarantino No, film? Because, not at all. Uh, if There's a not- lot of violence. Yeah, if you're worried about the violence against women, don't see what happens to the men. It's a lot worse. He's, he's yeah. going to cry. And uh, the idea that, like, uh, because Reservoir Dogs, violence is t- performed on literally everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea of, like oh, we need to uh, have more women in this film. He's basically calling for more women to be hurt in the film Reservoir Dogs. Like, if he needs more people than shot women and shocked women, (laughs) is that what he's calling for? Yeah, I think so. And then uh, third part, to single out how Uma Thurman's character is treated in Pulp Fiction when she's being stabbed in the heart with an adrenaline needle... It's to save her life. <laughs> like
2: apparently, the film... we can't save any more women's lives.
1: Yeah, it's like the, it, so. If you haven't seen *Pulp Fiction*, first off, what are you doing? And second off, so he stabs her like she's overdosing. Mm-hmm. So he stabs her with an adrenaline needle, and she comes back to life. So apparently, if he's being respectful and he's being peaceful with women, he should have just let just her. Got to let, let him die. Got to let her OD. You don't want to be. By his logic, is every surgeon just this depraved lunatic that just yep. goes into people's bodies and performing all acts of terrible things like? Medicine you know, is Taking out world. tumors and stuff like that. Like what an absolute sick freak. Uh so for me, I it sucks that we have to cancel Quentin Tarantino. I love his films, but uh you know Much violence until you have more women have being performed violence on in Quentin Tarantino films. Less women being it. saved. Yeah, exactly. Uh all right, Adam, well, you saw you know, you're a musician, you saw something pretty big happen well, in the this music was, world. This is
2: kind of uh on the uh the more interesting side. ASAP Rocky has been charged and imprisoned in Sweden. Yeah. Where he's been there for a little while now. And
1: ASAP Rocky American rapper. Might, American, maybe not everyone American knows rapper. who he is. He's but a, a
2: big boy. He's very big. Yeah. And his music's awesome. I'd yes. uh, check it out. Anyway, Trump has offered to personally vouch for ASAP Rocky's bail. <laughs> and a lot of people are really upset about this. Yeah. And I think you must really hate Trump yeah. if you want ASAP. Rocky to stay in jail
1: Yeah, it's like uh, You know what To beat Trump To own Trump We're going to let ASAP Rocky rot in a Swedish yeah, prison Yeah, he's, he's just got to Sorry man This is the way there. it's got to be This is the way it's got to be Sorry ASAP Yeah <laughs> Bad news for you uh, What I like the idea is like Because Trump uh, I'm going to guess That mm-hmm. Trump did not know Who ASAP Rocky was Before he got involved In a Swedish yeah. prison Do you reckon someone had to like actually sit down and explain to Trump like, oh, his name's ASAP with the dollar sign, not ASAP with the S, and like, well, this is the ASAP mob, this is what they're about. Uh, I reckon, I reckon Trump actually. I
2: mean, he had a kind of a relationship with Kanye. Yep. He's vouching for ASAP Rocky. Yep. Maybe he's a secret, you know, big rap fan. Reck- reckon? Yeah, I right. reckon. We've
1: got to get a we got to get a hold of his metadata, see what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Let's get on that. If he's like some odd future fanatic, just can't get yeah. enough a to tower. The creator that would be huge. Um, all right, I've got another one here. So uh, I've got bad news. Apparently, the uh, the outrage mob on the internet is has become all powerful. So. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is, uh, you know, obviously the biggest celebrity on the planet, I would say. Uh, And he decided to weigh in on the new British Prime Minister. So he tweeted out, breaking, PM Boris Johnson is in fact my cousin, because they got the same surname. So it's a joke. Uh, Though we clearly look more like twins. Jokes aside, PM did say something in his speech I liked. Quote, the people are our bosses. 100% agree. The people slash audience slash consumer will always matter. Moss, hashtag our boss. Pretty good tweet. Yeah. Unfortunately not. Because he's now been, he now then, sorry, he then deleted the tweet after everyone started tweeting at him that Boris Johnson's the worst person in the world. So, uh, he then tweeted out, well, according to the people, maybe we're not related after all, big mahalo to my people who I can always rely on to give me the real talk and swift perspective and education on the individual I did not know, tequila on me, Britain. So, The Rock, the most powerful man in the world, the biggest celebrity in the world. big man. Yep is now not as powerful as the outrage mob. There is no hope for us on the internet. Is exactly. my theory.
2: What I think is funny about it is the tweet was, you know, people are the boss. Yeah. He took that tweet down in 15 minutes. Yeah. He did exactly what the people wanted him to do straight away. Yeah, exactly. So there was nothing... He did not lie in the tweet.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. The people are our boss. And if the people mm-hmm. make The Rock feel nervous about the yeah, uh, he'll do release of Hobson Shaw, he will delete it very quickly. Uh, see... This really hurts me because I don't know if you've ever had this one, but if you ever had the one like, uh, oh, if the aliens landed tomorrow, who would you send to talk yeah. to them? Now, my answer's always been The Rock because you got—he's incredibly charming—and then second of all.
4: If they wouldn't go, hurt him.
1: They, yeah, they wouldn't hurt him. And then second of all, he's also gigantic. And they're like, what if everyone looks like that on yeah. planet Earth? Let's not mess he's with a
2: good people. representation. But if
1: he can't stand up for 15 minutes to the outrage mob, I'm going to have to find a new diplomat. Because I he agree. doesn't sound like he's going to be someone that's going to push for Earth's survival that hard.
2: I agree. He'll give in to whatever they want. Yeah. He'll right. sell us to the aliens.
1: All right. So good luck to us all out there. All right. Thanks so the final welcome. story we have... Uh, well, you saw this one. So, Will Fowles was a Labour MP, a uh, Labour state MP in Victoria that mm-hmm. got himself into a bit of trouble in Canberra.
2: Yeah, he was in his hotel room and he smashed down his door. But he didn't, it's not one of those swift kicks like in the movies where the police kick it down. He has taken off half the door.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, they were holding luggage for him and he wanted it because he's late for 9am. He had a
2: 9am flight. It so, is
1: very early. Yeah, it's an early flight. No one loves mm-hmm. a 9am flight. But. Uh, definitely I've I've never had a 9 a.m. flight where I felt the need to kick a door no less than ten times. Like, yeah, he no, broke a sweat.
2: He's been spending a fair bit of time, probably yep. longer than it would take to get someone with a <laughs> yeah,
1: keg. Exactly. Like if you were so, sort of late for the flight before you started kicking, you're <laughs> yeah, definitely late he's, now. He's late well, late now.
2: He's probably injured his foot. He can't he's gonna limp to the airport now. Yep.
1: I also like the idea that, like, uh, because his excuse was it was a nine AM flight, and I like the idea that, like, the earlier the flight is, the more uh, anger and the more more advanced weaponry you can use on a hotel. Like, if you've got a five AM flight, you can come in with a bazooka and just blow the the breath out of a door. Yeah, you can do whatever you like. (laughs) Just make sure everyone's safe, but you can then burn the hotel to the ground if it's a five AM flight. Uh, And that's just, you know, that's just the rules that we can take out of this. All right, uh, that is it for the show this week. Thanks again to Matthew Lesh and uh, Sean, and thank you to Adam. Thanks for. are doing we? an incredible job sitting oh. in for Pete. Um, I don't need Pete anymore. He's been holding me back all these years, and I think Sorry, you and I Pete. are going to lift each other up to That's new good. and undiscovered heights. Now, Adam, you are the music. You are a very good musician. Oh, uh, the band is So Fox. We are. Yeah, we're right. So Fox, and uh, you were hard enough to let us play another song because last yeah. week we played one of your songs at the end of the show, people really loved it. So oh, thanks happy everyone for that to happen again.
2: Yeah, I'd all love right. to. Uh, uh, what track would you like? This one's called "Lover's Side." It's off our EP. Thanks for listening, everyone.
1: Head to Spotify, check it out, and see you guys next week.
2: See you guys.